and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. Good evening, everybody. Hi, it's so great to see you. Oh, so many of you. It's absolutely awesome. Welcome back to all the familiar faces that we can see in the audience. It's so amazing to have people come back month after month after month. We're so grateful. Um, and welcome to anyone who is here for the first time. You're so welcome. On with the tonight's authors. Our first author tonight is Sophie McIntosh. Um, Sophie is the author, short story writer and poet whose work has been published in the White Review, Granter and Tank magazine. Her short stories are award-winning, coming runner-up in the 2016 White Review Short Story Prize for her story Grace and winning the Virago Stylist Short Story Competition for her story The Running Ones. Sophie's debut novel The Water Cure was released in May. Please welcome Sophie McIntosh. So um, The Water Cure is a book about three sisters who live um, with their father King and their mother in an isolated community which may or not be in the near future and it exists in a world that's where men are toxic to women and um, they've been cut off from the whole world, they've never seen men before and then three men wash up on their shore and it's about ha- what happens when that happens. Um, so I'll just tell you a, bit, a little bit about how I came to write it and kind of my journey to publication. Um, so The Water Cure is not the first book that I have written. I did write a book after uni um, and this book, I mean, I think I finished it when I was like 23, 24 and I just wrote wrote it and it was the most fun time of my life. At the time I was working um, in Glasgow in a Starbucks and I was having a wonderful time post-university writing a novel. I had no idea how to do it and then I finished it and I was like, great, amazing. I've written 50,000 words, time to like make my millions. Um, I'm gonna sell it to like a publishing house and everything will be great. Um, and then I obviously tried sending it out to agents and strangely like nobody wanted it <laughs> because it was like not very good because I had no idea how to actually write a book. Um, so after that, I I sort of continued working on that, but I moved to London. Um, the real world took over a bit and I started working in tech PR, a very fascinating industry. Um, all the time I was writing a little bit um, and then I met my agent and I, yeah, we started working on that book that I had written in Glasgow a bit more and we sent it out to publishing houses and I thought, finally, this is it. This is going to be, this is like the one I'm going to sell a book. I'm going to be a writer. Did not sell (laughs) as happens for many writers. Um, It was fine. I was like, okay, I've written a book and we'll just like do some more work on it and it'll be fine. So I worked on it for like another year. I was still working all the time, um, did not sell again. <laughs> so by this time I'd been through the process like twice and I was really disillusioned. I was really tired. Um, I felt a bit like, oh, is what I'm doing even even good anymore? So I kind of went back to what I thought, what I really loved doing, which was short fiction. And that's when I, I won the White Review Short Story Prize, which was an amazing boost for me and kind of gave me the confidence to think about future projects and I sat down with my agent and I thought I have a new idea for a book I'm gonna go for it and then I wrote that that was the water cure and it took me 
a long time it took me well it took me like probably 18 months to two years to finish it completely and like many many drafts and this time I wasn't expecting to finish a first draft and immediately like conquer the world I knew there was a lot of work involved I knew that I was a person who worked in a way that involved a lot of drafting um so I worked on it really hard and somehow almost a year ago today <laughs> actually probably like yeah 13 months ago today we decided it was ready and we sent it out and it ended up in an auction which was the most ridiculous time of my life and like the whole time I was working full-time as well so I was like really really tired by this point like just really tired like by the end of finishing the book I was getting up at like five in the morning I was writing in my house then I'd get on the tube and go to work and then at lunchtime, I would go to the Starbucks near my office. I just love Starbucks. I love to work at Starbucks. I love to write in Starbucks. Um, and I would like write for another hour. And then after work, I'd go right back and I'd go back into Starbucks and I'd write for another hour and then go home and probably write a bit more. And so I was really tired and I just kind of wanted it to be over. But because I'd been through the whole rodeo like twice before, I just assumed it's probably not going to sell again. Like probably I'm cursed and like my books are terrible and I'll just yeah probably publishing just doesn't want me but this time it was really different and it was a wonderful experience and my book did sell and now it is out <laughs> so that is <laughs> different parts of the body submerged mean different things different temperatures too ice bucket therapy for hands and feet where energies concentrate Crucial to take the heat out of feeling ourselves. Naturally cold, I am rarely prescribed it. Icy little fish, your pet name for me. Former pet name. Leah has a day where she can't stop crying and she doesn't try to hide it. On the contrary, she sits in my bed even though I don't want her there. You'll poison the air, I tell her, irritated. Leave me alone, she says, bunching the duvet around her feet. It's a very hot day. I can see every speck of dust where it twists against the floral wallpaper, the light. Her cheeks are too red. She is fractious, always so difficult. Mother fills up the ice bucket, half ice, half water. The four of us are in her bathroom. Mother is in her bad day uniform, King's old grey t-shirt and leggings with holes at the knee. We are all in our nightgowns. We didn't bother getting dressed today. Leah is still crying. She puts her hands in the bucket voluntarily. She wants to feel better. For a second, I am moved. Good girl, mother murmurs. She keeps her hands on Leah's wrists as my sister closes her eyes and grimaces. She drums it, sky drums her hands on the floor. A mosaic of blue and white does not take her eyes off Leah's face. Her movements become quicker. Stop that, Sky, Mother says. Leah's own hands move in the bucket, the clumsy sound as she stirs the ice. I watch the colour recede from her face. Air greenhouse still, browning foliage laid on the windowsill. We are for forever bringing flowers inside and forgetting about them, a failure to care about anything other than ourselves. I wonder whether you... Um, did you work out exactly what the situation was and what the world was and then write it 
knowing that in your own head or did you write it that's a really long question <laughs> but did you but did you write it kind of knowing knowing the facts because you'd established it or did you write it hinting it because you weren't sure fully what they were no i i, I <laughs> think i think like a thing that I've, I've heard a lot is like oh the book is really vague and some people have like loved the vagueness and some people have really hated the vagueness um i think I, I wanted to be vague, but I knew exactly what was going on. And I, I literally kind of wrote down for myself and like showed my editor. I was like, here is here is like exactly what's happening. <laughs> because I think if it's so vague, you need to know what's happening yourself because you need to know exactly what information to give out. And maybe I could have actually given out <laughs> some more information. But also I kind of like that you have to make up your own mind and stuff. But I did have, I had a really firm idea of like what is actually happening and what's, what's the kind of backstory. And like I have kind of... I have like to some friends being like, this is what actually happened. Yeah. Oh wow, you have to tell me everything <laughs> after this. So I think the vagueness makes it mm. kind of. You can obviously then apply your own mm. like imagination yeah. to it and imagine how bad it would be or like. But there's a bit called um, Picnic at Hanging Rock and it's amazing and that one is also has a bit like what actually happens and there was like an ending to the book like an alternate ending where you actually find out what happened and when I found that out I was like oh my god it actually takes so much from the book <laughs> like to know exactly what happens I was like sometimes it's good to have the mystery and the vagueness and to be able to put your own conclusion because I found it just really disappointing to know the answers. Did you have any qualms, it sounds as if you did, but I'm wondering did you um, think about or have any hesitancy in thinking about having so many female characters that could be seen as quite similar and did you have to really think hard about distinguishing them? I'm just going to repeat that yeah. into the, so did you have any problems writing female characters that were similar and did you have problems distinguishing them? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky one because they are three sisters, so they're kind of naturally similar, but you obviously want them to be different. But they kind of don't all have all the markers of, like, if you, if, I don't know, if you, if you live in, like, the normal world or the real world, you have, like, things you prefer or, like, kind of easy markers, and they didn't have that stuff, so that was a challenge. Um, but I just kind of tried to think about how they approach the world. And, like, one thing I actually did that sounds really weird but was really helpful was, like, writing voices in different fonts. And like, <laughs> like it's really hard to like write some phrases in Garamond and some like Times New Roman that really like gives a different a different feel to them. So that was like my top tip for differentiating. <laughs> That's so cool. That's a good idea. That's a great idea. Get into the voices with the with a bit of comic sound. If yeah, yeah. A bit funny. I like that idea. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. <laughs> Okay, so our next author is Rachel Edwards, author of Darling. Uh, after studying French and English and a stint in publishing, Rachel Edwards started writing fiction in her 20s. Her work garnered her an award from the Arts Council, which included mentoring sessions with author Catherine Johnson, and these proved the stepping stone to, to writing full-time and the publication of her first acclaimed novel, Darling. Please welcome Rachel Edwards. Hello, everyone. Um, so... A bit about Darling, first of all. So Darling's been billed uh, by both by publishers and the press as a Brexit thriller, although, to tell you the truth, it didn't start out that way necessarily. Um, Darling explores the relationship between a black British stepmother, which I am, and Darling White and her white English stepdaughter, Lola, at the time of the EU referendum, which we all no doubt remember. <laughs> we learn right at the beginning of the book that within six months, one of them is dead. Um, I'll go into Darling in more detail in a bit, but first of all, I want to tell you a bit about how I came uh, to be published. So, um, until the spring of 2016, I'd been a freelance writer for about 12 years myself, so I'd been 
copywriting, all kinds of things for small businesses and large businesses. And I've been writing for women's magazines such as Marie Claire, whatever, and I find that very exciting. Or, um, and I've been doing all kinds of online projects. And as any of you know, if you make your living through writing, it's, quite e it's much easier than it was to, to write um, for a living these days because of the internet. Um, it's a really great grounding, but I always had a passion for fiction. Since I was seven years old, all I wanted to do was write novels. I didn't know quite how I'd go from maybe writing for a living to writing fiction for a living. Um, I, through my 20s, I, in my 20s, I, I got an agent. Uh, it was certainly not a smooth path. I had an agent who's quite well known, quite a starry agent, but she wrote she promoted promotionally, uh, primarily women's commercial fiction, which is great, and she's quite a starry agent. I was pretty intimidated by her, to tell you the truth. And, um, but I didn't really write women's commercial fiction, so I thought I'd try and fake it for a bit, see if I can get a, get a book deal, you know, see if I can write a, few, write a few chapters and get some deal. And that didn't really work out. So after a few years, and I was raising my kids with my lovely husband over there in the corner, and, um, <laughs> and so after a while, a few abortive attempts, we decided to part company. I thought, okay, when the kids got to a certain age, which was... 18 I thought okay now I'm gonna really try and write properly you know and um, so I did and I was very lucky I found an agent my dream agent Joanna Swainson of Hardman Swainson and I wrote a book um, which is not the book that I'm talking about tonight but it's it was a book that um, I felt passionate about I thought maybe this is what I've been waiting to write and it was a great um, exercise in managing that amount of material for a start so I, I wrote what I thought was a book I only done one or two drafts and that was it got it off to Joanna, and she was incredibly wise. This is why you need a really good agent. She said to me, well, you know, I love your voice. This is, you can write, but this is not something to debut with. So I listened to her. I could have, you know, got really uptight about it, but I thought, actually, she knows what you're talking about. I don't. And, um, and so we didn't, we put that to one side, and I, then I started writing Darling, um, flat out. And I wrote, um, I wrote that, and then after a year or so, it, no, eight months, I wrote Straight, and then it went out to Penguin and HarperCollins with the first show Interest. And uh, wonderfully, I spoke to Fourth Estate of HarperCollins and they seemed to really get the book. And I knew when I spoke to Anna Kelly, who's my editor, that she's the one I really wanted to be with. And so we signed a deal, which is fantastic. Um, and then after that, the TV rights actually got optioned. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was very excited. Well, on the same phone call, I was freaking out because the same day, and they said, yeah, okay, we're going to be booked down. I was going, okay. And they said, well, we'd like to buy, we want to manage the TV rights. And um, so they did that. So we passed that in the same day. And within a few weeks, I don't know if you know, any of you watched The, the Fall on BBC Two. Mm -hmm. Do you see that? So it's Artist Studios, the TV production company who, who, um, created The Fall, and they read Darling, and a few weeks after I had my book deal, they phoned up and said they want to option it. So now they're talking to broadcasters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. So it was, it was yeah, it was quite a surprise, but it's really, really, been a really exciting time. Um, so my book just came out on the 17th of May, so just a few weeks ago. And um, if I talk about why I had the idea of writing Darling itself. So Darling, the character, Darling White, came to me in early 2016. Um, I wanted to write about a black British stepmother, which I am, and I wanted to have a Jamaican heritage. My mother's Jamaican, but also my father's Nigerian, um, and I was born in this country. But I want to reflect on the realities of the black British identity and being a second generation immigrant. Um, and so Darling started to take shape in my mind for a few weeks. And I, 
I could see who she was, but I didn't know what her story was. I thought, where's she going? What, what's the point of her? What, what happens to her? And it wasn't until the 23rd of June, uh, 2016, <laughs> <laughs> and the Brexit vote, and um, I watched it unfold all night. I have to say, I'm sure there's, well, I don't know how people voted, but I watched it kind of in, in shock and horror <laughs> um, all night long. And at about five o'clock in the morning, I emailed my agent and I said, holy hell and no, you know, this is happening. And, um, but by 7 a.m., as a, the daughter of Windrush Generation, you know, immigrants, um, Britain already looked like a different place to me out the window. It felt different. And at that point, I thought, okay, this is Darling's story. This is the time it's interesting to be um, an immigrant. And this is what the story has to be. So um, then there was another incident a couple of days later. I went to my local town. So just to explain, I don't live in London. I live in Oxfordshire. So, and I have always really lived in the home counties, Barfuse, at University at King's. So I have, I'm not a Londoner, I'm not a city person. And it's a quite different experience living as a black woman out in the shires, as it were. <laughs> um, and two days after the Brexit vote, I went to a local town and there was a man who's kind of medium build and quite scruffy and he was up on some kind of scaffolding balcony arrangement. And he called down to me and he just said, oh, if I were that girl, I'd leave the country. <laughs> And yeah, and I was so taken aback, and I was I wasn't scared because I thought you know he he I didn't feel physical danger, but I just felt so indignant, so outraged, and you know I'd lived here for four decades and never had anyone say anything like that to me, and I felt incredibly angry, and I felt that my home because I have no other home and where am I supposed to go to Jamaica or Nigeria? I mean, where am I supposed to be sent back to? You know. Um, I went home and I already had Darling in my mind and from that day on I started writing Darling and I, I started writing for eight months and I basically didn't stop and uh, that was what I wanted to go across. The, the main message that I had in my book was that racism corrupts love and that kind of fueled me for <laughs> several hundred pages. So. On the Monday evening I engineered an excuse to stay over at Littleton Lodge when Stevie was with Demarcus and Thomas was dining with clients. I needed time alone with Lola. I would cook for us. Food, though, was turning for my gift into our battleground. Most days, Stevie ate anything, but Lola, she was a tricky one. That night, I offered her spaghetti with either bolognese or tuna and tomato sauce, but she wasn't feeling pasta. <laughs> so I offered grilled chicken, potatoes, but she wasn't feeling chicken or potatoes. So I offered a sea bass fillet, not feeling it. Sausages, nah. Sirloin steak, nah, she wasn't feeling meat at all. By this time, I was feeling the need for air. So back in a minute, I left her in front of the TV and grabbed my bag, which now held a fresh pack of cigarettes put there by me alone. I smoked. Then, with my deliberate failure already stale in my mouth, I hit upon a meat-free inspiration. Everyone loved my Caribbean vegetable curry. I aimed for Patty's West Indian food store a few streets away and bought back what was needed and wandered back. There was no sign of Lola downstairs. I snatched up a knife and cut out the scowling. There would be no asking, nor pleading, no telling, no pandering now, just dinner on a plate. I needed to calm my blood and get this sauce to bubble. It would taste almost as good from Thomas's overpriced pot. <laughs> I diced, diced the onion fast, chuk, 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 
grated the ginger, then fried them together, nice and slow. I whistled as I chunked out the vegetables, inhaled a savoury puff which seared my skin as I poured liquid over, a breather. I padded to the back door, time for the flavours to mix themselves up, for it all to meld together and break down a touch. I considered another cigarette, but remembered Lola's gift of suffering and pushed the urge aside, for now. I went back to the hob, added coconut milk, stirred and covered. Soon come. After at least 20 minutes, I decided to seek her out upstairs. Lola was in her room. She was sitting up on the bed, FaceTiming some friend, and when she looked up, I saw it, the naked, honest hatred that she had not been quick enough to hide. So then, Lola. I stood, rock steady, in her bedroom doorway until she killed the call. I'm making a Caribbean vegetable curry for you. I'm not really feeling... What aren't you feeling now, Lola? Curry? Vegetables? Or simply the Caribbean? <laughs> a twitch at her mouth. Well, no, I was just going to say I wasn't feeling that well. Oh, I said. I waited for the sympathy to come, but it did not. <laughs> I'll, I'll kick us off. Um, obviously, race is a central mm. issue to Darling. Yeah. Um, and it's also becoming more so within the publishing industry. We are mm. starting to see greater diversity. I, I caveat starting to see greater yeah. diversity. Yeah. There's been a, a, a spate of fantastic authors uh, for, of colour writing recently. Obviously, I would never ask you to speak for every author oh, of yeah. colour writing in the industry, but what do you think, as an author of colour, we can be doing, I, I, both as readers and mm. aspiring writers and within the publishing industry to encourage more diversity so that we can hear more voices? Oh, that's a really good question. Okay, so this obviously has been a big factor in uh, lots of the publishing uh, world at the moment. I'm with HarperCollins for the state and they have made great strides towards including um, new voices uh, of all sorts, you know, transgender, black and white and so on. But um, there has been some controversy. I think most of you have seen about Leonel Shriver and I, I kicked off about this on oh. Twitter. Oh. Yes, I mean, they say don't drink and tweet, but I, I, was on <laughs> I saw this quite late at night. I've had a lovely meal with my husband and I, and I had to say something because I was disappointed because I, I haven't read, um, we need to talk about Kevin, but I know she's very much admired. And I thought that there's a certain stance um, amongst hopefully a minority of um, authors that feel their entitlement and who are incredibly talented and no doubt very erudite and, and very well educated, but almost sniping for the citadel, looking at those coming up and thinking, actually, you know, we don't want to hear other voices. And it's a shock to me. And I'm naive, call me naive, but I actually think that publishing is only enriched by hearing more voices, whether it's from other countries or um, people who are from the transgender community or whatever. I think that we need to hear more voices. How can that hurt? And if you are confident in your own talent, why does that scare you and why do you have to put other people down? Mm. So I spoke out about that and I'm, I'm hugely uh, encouraged by the fact that many of the publishers Independence as well, I've been doing it for a long time and have never been necessarily given the praise for it. But now some of the bigger publishers really are standing up and looking to embrace people from 
you know, ethnic minorities and other communities. And I think that's going to be a good thing. As long as, and the standards will be maintained because as we all know, it is bloody hard to get published. It doesn't mean that because you're, if you're, as Lionel Shriver tried to say, if you're, you know, a black, lesbian, transgender person, you're, you're automatically going to get a book deal. It's a ridiculous thing to say. And actually, we all want high standards in, in literature, but more diversity can only be a good thing. Yeah, here, here. We very much agree. <laughs> Okay, uh, so you said that you wrote that first book and your agent said, okay, this isn't your debut. Yeah. Why was that? That's a, yeah. I'm just going to repeat that just, just in case we didn't Ooh. pick it up. Yeah, you mentioned that your agent, it wasn't your debut, the first book you wrote. Why was that book deemed not your debut? Okay, well, I, at the time, I wasn't sure because as you know, if you put your heart into it, but you think this is it, this is it, this is what I'm going to publish with, I, I gave it my best shot at the time. Looking back, I can totally see now why it wouldn't have been a debut because it was written in quite a self-protective way. I think I was quite arch in the tone and I think my agent, now agent, did a very good job of looking past my defence mechanisms to see actually an authentic voice because I was writing about, um, it was set in Oxfordshire and it's a very uh, middle class life and it wasn't because... I wanted to say, that is me. But I thought, well, I'm a writer, whether colour I am, I could write anything. But it wasn't something that touched me enough to really um, speak the truth about the subject matter. So whilst the, the writing one may have been good enough to get an agent, it wasn't the real book that I should have been writing, first of all. And it's only when I got really wound up and really quite hacked off about <laughs> lots of things that I had something, to, not something to say, but something, not something to tell rather, but something to say. I think that's an important thing. You know, we can tell, we can talk about lots of stories that we could we can um we can come to lots of ideas but actually there's some certain things that really matter to us and it's only darling that really really matters to me and i think that made all the difference actually in my writing and my agent could see that so our next author is justin myers author of the last romeo um, some of you might recognise Justin from his right eye, as that was it was a, it was the sole clue to the fact he was the author of the hugely popular Guyliner blog, in which he anonymously documented his dating life and discussed love, life, and LGBTQ issues. It wasn't long before publishers came a knocking, and the last Romeo is the result—a hilarious fictional tale of James and his quest for his Romeo. Please give it up for Justin. Hello, I'm Justin, and uh, I was, I am still sometimes the guy liner. Uh, I'll be really brief because the break's coming up. Um, so um, I, pretty much what Amy said, um, I have been a journalist for nearly two years. Uh, 20 years? I'm only 23. Um, I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years and uh, pretty much nobody was interested in my journalism until, and the, it's the uh, epigraph of the book actually, it's a quote from The Dark Knight Rises and it's, uh, no one cared who I was until I put on the mask, which Bane says before he kills someone I think. I haven't actually seen the film, uh, I just liked the quote. Uh, and after my relationship ended, I had lots of time on my hands. I lived alone in a, in a flat and sat eating Bombay mix in just my pants. And I thought I would use the time more wisely and start a blog about my uh, dating exploits. And to my extreme surprise, people read it and it became really popular. And like, people followed me on Twitter and stuff and knew things about me. And, and some of them stalked me, but that's all in the past now. <laughs> 
Um, and I uh, was approached by an agent to write a non-fiction book about dating, uh, but I wasn't really feeling the project. And uh, I did a very half-heartedly did a proposal, and it didn't get picked up anywhere. So, and I got I found out that on Brexit Day, Ooh. what a day! Yeah. I was like, so screw that. And then I was approached by uh, Little Brown directly by my editor, Dominic Waitford, who is amazing. And he said, have you ever thought about writing a novel? And my tip for that is say yes immediately. Um, and don't spend two months worrying about it like I did, getting no sleep whatsoever, thinking, oh, my God, I really want to do this, but I have no idea what to do. I didn't just want to write up, you know, a fictionalization of my dates, because the truth is that real life is re very, very boring. The most interesting it would get would be going back to theirs for coffee. <laughs> Decaf. <laughs> um, so I um, had a flash of inspiration um, during the evening, and I, I thought it was all about taking what had happened to extremes. So obviously, I went, I became popular just over, a, over the course of time rather than doing anything particularly amazing. I thought, what if you were, as an anonymous dating blogger, you were hurtled into uh, viral stardom by something that you wrote? So I came up with the idea. Uh, I submitted a sheet of A4 with the idea on. Uh, Dominic took it to a meeting. They said, we like it. Can you write a chapter? I said, okay, a month of worrying again. I wrote a chapter. It was, it was all right. Um, and uh, handed it in and they gave me a book deal. <laughs> Why? And then I wrote the whole thing. In a, they said, oh, by the way, we need it really soon. So I wrote it in, uh, I think, like first word on the page to final draft being handed in was eight months. Uh, and I had to do my normal job as well and do the worrying because that's quite an important thing for my career. Um, and it's out. It looks like that. Um, and uh, the plot is, uh, as Amy said, uh, James is 34. So, you know, added a few years on to my age. Uh, and just out of a, a pretty mean relationship, I have to stress that my ex was really, really nice. I have to say this every time I do a reading because the ex in this book is really a dickhead. Um, and he, his best friend moves to Russia and he is feeling very lonely and very unfulfilled in his job working on a celebrity gossip website. So he decides to hone his craft on um, doing a dating blog. Uh, everything goes pretty well, and then he goes on a date with a closeted Olympic athlete and writes about it and goes viral overnight. So while it's on the surface of it a dating book, it's also really about internet duality, which I'm fascinated with, because obviously hid behind the eye for the best part of half a decade. Uh, and it's about, you know, the way we... Uh, treat celebrities when they come out, the way we talk about coming out, and also um, how horrible everyone is to one another on the internet. What's that all about? No one's horrible to me though, they don't dare, they don't try it. So the bit I'm going to read is from early on in the book, and James, uh, having been off the market for six years, is, uh, shall we say, somewhat behind on the uh, wooing process. So he's joined a uh, dating website, which definitely isn't a thinly disguised Guardian Soulmates. <laughs> Land of the men on, in cardigans. Lots of ukulele playing as well. God. I never want to be single again. Okay, um, so he's pr uh, composing for the very first time a, an email to a man who he's never met before. He just likes the look of his profile. And uh, it is one minute to one o'clock in the morning, so you can guess what kind of state he might be in. 059, composed new message. Hello, my name is James. 
Am I supposed to tell you my name? For security reasons, maybe I shouldn't. I'm not sure. You can't be too careful, can you? Well, you can be too careful. Driving overly slowly, for example, is very dangerous. Um, But, you know, it's not like I'm sending you my PIN number, is it? Sorry, I mean PIN. No need to add number, as my ex was always telling me. Okay, so I definitely shouldn't be mentioning my ex, Adam. (laughs) We parted amicably. Well, I was amicable, him not so much. Okay, right. Well, what I wanted to say was that I liked your profile. I mean, you know this because I clicked like. Well, not like, I clicked the heart thing. Faved you? Hearted you? (laughs) Loved you? Too soon? Too soon, too soon. Anyway, I hearted your profile and the things you said, and I can see that in some ways you were a bit like me. Whether this is a good thing or not, I can only guess, but let's sum it up in bullet points. One, I too enjoy long walks. Longer the better. If I could walk while fast asleep, I would do this. I've considered investing in robot legs to allow me to do just that. I'm just saving up for a sat-nav system and autopilot, so I don't walk into the sea. And uh, I'll then have achieved my dream of existing in a permanent state of perambulation. Two. Great two. Great to see that you love both staying in and going out. quite handy because, and please stand by because I am about to deploy the word literally in its proper sense, one's entire life is literally spent doing one or the other of those two things. You are either in or you are out, so to like both, well, I mean you're off to the races straight away with that one, aren't you? And it's so hard to choose between them, like staying in with all its home comforts, such as the TV. Do you watch TV? I'm willing to pretend I don't if it gives me intellectual points. And the fridge is at home too, and that's where wine lives. For a brief period. Also, if, you have a, uh, if you're at home, you uh, have a toilet that you absolutely know the identity of everyone who has sat upon it before you. Unless you live in a shared house, in which case this is something of a lottery. I don't live in a shared house, and nor do I uh, have a camera rigged up to the toilet to check who's used it before me. No, I live by myself in Camberwell, in the biggest flat I can afford, which in a nutshell is not very. In fact, it really is a nutshell. Perhaps I am the nut. I probably shouldn't say I live alone in case men take advantage of me, but maybe that's what I want. Not that I'm a slut or anything, unless you find that empowering, do you? I am joking, I am joking, I am joking. Three! (laughs) Italian food, brilliant. So nice to find someone still unapologetically eating carbohydrate in the 21st century. And one of the least Instagrammable cuisines in the world to boot. You can photograph a plate of meatballs and linguine all you want. It's never going to look better than sushi, is it? You'll notice I used gunner there, and I wouldn't usually as I'm a journalist, but I think it makes me sound quite relaxed and cool and not willing to take myself too seriously. Casual, you know, a little bit, hey. (laughs) Kind of like the kind of guy who would smoke a joint at a party but not throw up until I got home sort of thing. (laughs) 
Is this working? Have I worked my magic enough? Charmed you? Cast my spell? Have a look at my profile too, maybe. That's bound to sway you one way or the other. If the words aren't doing it for you, maybe the face will. All photos are new, apart from the one of me on the London Eye looking nervous. I look nervous because I am nervous. I don't like heights. If you're a rock climber or live on top of a very large tree, please do not get back in touch. (laughs) But I hope you do, because if I like you and you like me, we should probably do something about it, shouldn't we? Like as soon as we can, before we irreversibly age. There is no other way to age than irreversibly. Call me. Like, you can't call me because I can't give you my number until you apply because security. But message me back sounds so desperate and I'm anything but desperate. I'm desperate. (laughs) I'm just a boy standing, sitting in front of a laptop screen or phone if I'm on the go and I can get the app to work. Asking you to love me. Well, cart me. My profile. Anyway, yes? Cool. James, kiss. Oh, so the kiss is just to be polite. It doesn't mean I'm in love with you. I sign everything off with a kiss unless it's a business email. This is definitely not business. It's pleasure, I think. Okay, I'm going. Send? Mm, Maybe I need to sleep. Save as draft. 8.47am. Compose new message. Hello. I'm James. I really liked your profile, and your pics too, and I hope you like mine. If you do, and want to grab a drink sometime, let me know. J, full stop, no kiss. (laughs) Send? (sighs) Message sent. (laughs) Amazing. Has anyone in this room been on a dating app? Or on a dating website? No one's going to admit to it. No okay, one. Sure. Well, thank rubbish. you very much. Yes. Oh, I see. We're all kind You're of all on grinder. I know it. <laughs> um, yes. Um, but yeah. Anyway, that's exactly what it's like. Was what it I was really is. Say. Full of dickheads like James. Yeah. Oh no, James is lovely. A bit of a bell end though at but, times. What, but that's well, the idea. He's supposed to be, you know, relatable. Any more questions? But oh yes. I'm curious about this with writers. Do you show your work to anybody? Or did you show your, your writing to anyone as you were going along? Or did you just get on and do it? Did, did you show your writing to anyone? No. You <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody at all. My editor was the first person to see the completed draft. I didn't show anyone anything. I, because I know people work in different ways, and other people have told me that that's a bit strange for me to do that, and that they really uh, you know, liked the feedback. But my worry with that was if I showed that to somebody who I knew I might be coloured by their opinion of it and also their opinion doesn't matter because they'll get free copies of the book <laughs> it's, the, it's the punters that need to that need to like the book so um, no I didn't show it to anybody I was very very secretive worried a lot again common thread about it but I didn't show it to anybody I didn't want anyone to see it until my editor saw it yeah yeah, yeah none of that yeah. That's, that's advice that people say. They're like, make sure you show your friends. And like, there was one bit I showed to my partner because there's a bit, I don't think it's that much of a spoiler, there's a bit in the uh, book where uh, someone parody, parodies James. They write a blog parodying his own blogging style. And I gave it to my boyfriend to say, if someone parodied the guy line, do you think it would sound like that? And he went, yes. So that was it. <laughs> but that's only two pages. The rest of it was, was all mine. So the only feedback you got for your entire book was one word. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Scottish yes. accent. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. Very good. What? What? Hundred percent good positive feedback. Yes. So, so you know, five stars immediately. <laughs> Absolutely. Any more questions? Because I've got another one. Oh yes. Um, 
Um, obviously, there's a bit of kind of your story in that. That's kind of where it came yeah. from. Do you find it quite hard to to not go into what had happened to you, or did you kind of draw on that? How so did you? Yeah. That's yeah. How much of you is in the book, and how did you distinguish fact and fiction? So that is a good question because with some of it being based on real events, it made it difficult. Because I was like, oh, well, that happened. Should I put that in? Or am I being true to what, you know, my real-life friend said? And actually, uh, the more I worked on it and the further away I got from my own experiences, my own story, the more interesting the book became, I think. So I had to... I mean, the friends in the book are not my friend. The situations are similar, so I do have two godsons and I do have a best friend from uni, that kind of thing. But they had to be completely different characters because if I wrote, you know, uh, 80,000 words of us standing in the kitchen, me watching her smoke a fag and get some of the ash going into the roast dinner, <laughs> sounds great, but I don't think anyone would buy it. So it was, it was difficult, actually. So I really had to go new places. It, I, what I really liked about the process was finding... I've always had... It sounds like I'm, like borderline personality disorder or something but I've always had a guy liner voice and then my own voice that I write to when I'm doing my normal stuff so finding that a uh, bit in between my author voice I actually really enjoyed it but it was a bit difficult at first yeah and uh, I did not have sex with an Olympic athlete <laughs> just to be clear you, can, you don't have to tell people that you your, your secret that. is safe Tom yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nah no nah, you're all right thanks um, I'm just going to point out, because we are putting this out as a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no. Tom is. Tom Daly. Oh, yeah. Tom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, we didn't really do it. That's just to repeat that. Justin Myers and Tom Daly have not had We have sex. not done it. Not done it. Okay, good. That's I would us. swipe left. We will not get sued, probably. Yes, it would be fine. Okay, well, Justin's next book, Fagash in the Chicken, um, is coming out <laughs> in June. But for the moment, thank you so much, Justin Myers. Thank you. Right, okay, so next up we have Charlene Teo, author of Ponty. And Charlene's something of a high achiever, recipient of the Booker Prize Foundation Scholarship, winner of the David T.K. Wong Creative Writing Award, and in 2016 she was awarded the inaugural Deborah Rogers Writers Award for Ponty, her first novel, which is reading from tonight. So. Well, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Charlene, and um, basically I wrote this book called Ponty. And um, a Ponty is actually a short form for a Pontianak, which is a... Southeast Asian mythical cannibalistic entity. And it's also um, a military acronym for a person of no tactical importance. <laughs> so yeah, the, the genesis of Panti was in the winter of 2012, which was one of the coldest winters to date. And I was in bed and I was falling asleep and I had this kind of jolt, you know, when you jolt awake and you feel like you're falling. And um, it's called a hypnic jerk. And basically, I jolted awake, and I could see this kind of like really sort of bluish light in my room. And I had this kind of picture in my head of this woman. And she was coming out of like these, these leaves. And she had kind of a bloody mouth. I mean, it was really pretty <laughs> terrifying. But the thing that really struck me was her eyes. They were kind of beady and black. And she looked deeply sad. And that kind of really stuck with me. I mean, like, typically, you'd be terrified. Um, but that, that got me thinking about one of my fascinations, which is with horror and like horror films and tropes of being scared. And why do we pay money to go on roller coasters and fear for our lives? And why do we watch scary, scary movies? So I've, I've always wanted to be a novelist and I was trying really hard. So I kind of thought of the, the woman. Um, she fitted the mold of a Pontianak, um, which is basically a Malay myth. Um, and she's this young woman. Um, before the ring came into fashion, she wears a long white dress, often bloody, 
and she's walking along these dark dirt roads and um, she basically um, cannibalizes men so she really attacks men she, she has a thing against men um, and she kind of sucks their eyeballs out in some iterations of the myth so it sounds very gory but um I started writing a novel told from the point of view of this monster because I was very fascinated with our kinds of relationships to myths and, and supernatural stories and how these stories are carried down through generations. Why are you so afraid of this young woman? Why is this woman suddenly a threat? You know, and, and it's tied very much to um, a woman who dies prematurely at childbirth. So I was like, well, you know, society finds ways to demonize women and kind of like hold them up to certain ideas of how they should behave, you know, what to do with motherhood and like how to be prim and proper. So I thought I hadn't read many books that were set in Singapore, which is where I'm from, um, that dealt with contemporary society and moving as a woman through the world in such a society um, that, that kind of deviated from pop cultural perceptions of Asian femininity. So if you think of an Asian woman in a lot of Hollywood movies, there's this trope of them being really fucking docile and like, I hate it, it's gross. <laughs> so I just, I just started writing from the point of view of this monster and she was so powerful and it was so fun. She just used to fly over the graveyard. She used to shit in graveyards. She went into a supermarket and poked all the meat, made all the meat go stale, sucked her eyeballs. And then at the end of my amazing novella, she crawls into the internet because I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like, this old-fashioned monster crawling into modernity. Look at her go. She's crawling through lines of code. I really wrote, I wrote that through and it was like, I wrote the internet. I wrote about memes and pornography and phishing forums and stuff like that. But, but it didn't really go anywhere because at the end of her going through the corridor, she just hits a wall and then she opens a door and she ends up in this little boy's bedroom. That's where my novella ended because <laughs> I was like, I just, I don't know where to where to take her and I'm not particularly interested in finding out because I just didn't define the parameters of like her power. So I think that's a really interesting thing when you have the initial idea, like the seed of an idea and you feel it very strongly. I think the real challenge with novel writing is kind of sustaining it. You know, it's, it's a marathon and it's, it's exhausting and it's so demoralizing. And I, I basically had nine months to write this novel. I applied for a fellowship. I got, got this fellowship to write it. It's nine months. I was like, that's, that's the time it takes for a baby. And I was like, every day I would be like, I'm writing my amazing novel. It's going to change the world. It's about this monster. And I go for drinks with my friends and tell them about it and talk it out. So that's another thing I've learned. Never, ever talk about your project before it's finished because it just loses air. And I just, I just pitched it so much all the time. I was like, it's incredible. She goes into the internet. Internet. She gets a haircut. She meets this little kid. You know, she's so amazing. But then I would just, I would just stay like, you know, my cursor would just blink at me, and it was just not going anywhere. So basically, um, uh, the next year, I watched this movie called Barbarian Sound Studio, which is um, a very David Lynchy film about the Italian sort of giallo industry, and it's about a sound engineer um, who, who, who kind of takes part in this set in the 70s and um, I love the kind of aesthetic of it like the, the grit and the grunge and the grime and I, I'm very very fascinated with filmmaking and performance like how standing up talking to you now I'm I'm performing in a certain way I have I don't know a particular demeanor however self-conscious and we're kind of acting all the time so I, I got thinking about um, if I could make this Pontianak like this monster someone that was acting as a Pontianak at a time in Singaporean film history when such films were just not not well received at all, like nobody cared about them anymore. So because of the kind of um, post-production period of a, of a film, you know, by the time you get to the end of two years, what if it's completely out of fashion or there have been five other films like it? So, you know, it was kind of destined to fail. Um, and the third kind of thing that really fascinated me was 
with a kind of point of view of like uh, teenage girlhood in Singapore. So I have a very particular experience of that in the kind of early 2000s. And I'm very fascinated by how we have these big feelings when you're a teenager. And, and you spend your whole adulthood trying to replicate these big feelings. You, you're such a huge fan of, you know, like books and bands and, and, you know, use these things to define your personality. And I thought that was very, very moving. So I just put it all together and it took a couple of years and uh, many false starts. And I wrote it in fragments, so not all in a linear fashion. It's messy. Um, many points of time I thought I would never, ever finish it. And even now, having finished one, it doesn't really get any kind of simpler. I just think like maybe I'll just never write another one. <laughs> but there's something very, very reassuring about that because I feel that I personally write from a point, place of abject helplessness. So I'm just like terrified all the time. So anyway, um, Ponty is about three women in Singapore. It uh, takes place from the late 60s to the year 2020. Um, it centers around Amisa Tan, who is a kind of horror movie actress acting in the Ponty film trilogy um, in the late 70s to the early 80s. The second strand is um, narrated by her teenage daughter, Sue, who's a teenager in 2003 in Singapore. And the final strand is um, by Sue's frenemy, Cersei, who's um, a social media consultant in the near future, like two years from now in the year 2020. So this bit I'm going to read is narrated by... Oh God, I can't even... Yeah, this, this is narrated by Cersei. Um, so this is in the year 2003. Oh, shit, sorry. Thank you. No, that's fine. I, I gravitate... Okay. Yeah, um, so this is um, told from the point of view of Cersei in the year 2003. So they're 16. The week after I first visited her home, I invited Sue over to my place after school. We waited by the concourse for mummy. Sue fidgeted beside me, a twitchy beanpole. Our silhouettes in the vis visitor's office window reflected our whole head difference in height. We made quite the duo. I, the small one with the frizzy bob, Sue, the tall one with the lifeless ponytail. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed the badminton girls shooting derisive glances our way. I pretended not to care. Mommy's Porsche pulled up. Everyone noticed. Sue got into the back seat and I took the passenger seat up front, slamming the door for emphasis. You're late, Mom, I said. Sorry, Cece. Traffic. Hello, Sue. Nice to meet you. I'm Auntie Magda. Hello, Auntie. How is school, girls? Going from good to just great, I replied. You and your funny sayings, Mommy chuckled and shook her head. I got out my phone and started to play Snake. I heard Sue still struggling behind me with a seatbelt, the polyester shift and stir, four fails and a click. When we got home, my maid Josephine brought out a tray full of orange slices and peanut cookies. Take it upstairs, thanks, I said. I followed the torpid turn of Sue's head as she took in our reception area, the peach marble floors, double cupboards full of Swedish glass ornaments, and the Persian carpet mommy sent for immersion cleaning every year. Cece tell me, tells me your mom is a movie star, mommy said. Um... Yeah, Sue replied. She gulped and looked up from under her eyelashes. She acted in the Ponty trilogy, 1978 to 1980, local horror movies. Ah, oh, I can't say I've heard of them, Mummy replied. Does she still act? Not anymore. She's retired. Sue had on that gummy, bashful voice she reserved for teachers. Well, I'll look for Ponty in the movie rental store next time. Please, Mom, I said. You never go to the rental store. Nobody uses rental stores anymore. It's all pirated VCDs nowadays, from Johor. You young people, I can't catch up. Auntie's a dinosaur. And what about your pa, Sue? What does he do? A antique restoration. Sorry, dear, I didn't catch that. Antique restoration. Oh, how nice. Our family friend, Uncle Meng, also. We're going to my room, I said. Come on, Sue. <laughs>
Thank you so much. That was absolutely amazing. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was that you're originally from Singapore. Yeah. And the book is set there. And one of the things that you often find is that authors will go back to where they're originally from or where their parents are from and set their novels there. What do you think it is about the, the act of returning home, even figuratively, that is so appealing for authors? Well, I think that it's, it's kind of like very arresting um, on a cognitive level in, in terms of how your brain works and what you notice. So like when you travel somewhere else, you're a lot more attentive to kind of everyday details, right? Whereas if you live somewhere and you're so used to the neighborhood, you can go around a track, you know, you can, you can do the same thing, go to the bus stop and not realize that a whole new building has, has sprung up. And I feel that with fiction, like the, the whole point of it is attentiveness, right? And when I read a good novel, I, I feel like the whole, the whole crux of it, what really moves me is the perception, like kind of seeing things phrased in a very simple but ingenious way, like this is true. And I think that um, for me personally, in terms of my creative process, like Singapore is, is this kind of, you know, mammoth kind of site of my imagination. And it is completely what I've imagined as well. It's kind of my emotional you know, affective sort of sight of whatever, I don't know, the crux of something. And when I try and write about London, it, it comes out a little bit hollow. Like, I mean, I think that I'm just not developed enough in my creative abilities right now to write convincingly about something that I'm so used to seeing every day. So I think like that's why I write about Singapore. And I, I believe I always kind of will return to Singapore in some way in my fiction because I don't read enough fiction about Singapore and there's like a lot of novels set in London so you don't need any more of them yeah. so forget about fine. those yeah. if you're thinking about writing a novel set London put it in the bin forget no, about no, it no, no. I'm, I'm kidding I'm kidding yeah, yeah. yeah but you're absolutely right it, and it's lovely to see a novel set somewhere that doesn't get a whole load of airplay you know in coverage. Yeah. so that's we're very it, it works so well anybody got questions before I ramble on oh whoa guys <laughs> whoa uh, yes, yes, and then yes. Um, so I grew up in Singapore and Malaysia, and so reading the book was just so amazing. It really brought back so many childhood memories for me. So thank you. Ah, uh, thank you. Um, yeah. my, my question was, was it a conscious decision to um, use the words Malaya instead of Malaysia and Malaya instead of Malaysian? Was it a conscious decision to use Malay rather than Malaysia? Malayan rather, Malayan rather than Malayan, Malaysian? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's just like I, I was just kind of using the terminologies um, to, uh, according to the kind of historical chronology, like the usage at the time. So it's not like my conscious aesthetic decision because I'm not that important. That I was just I just did try to do my research and make sure that it was kind of factually accurate to how people would refer to things at, at particular points of time. But that's a really good question. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know what kind of vernacular you choose is you know um, which sources you go to it's really right. fascinating isn't it yeah and um, there was another question here we'll make that our last one if that's okay um so sorry oh i'll tell you what if it's really quick we'll squeeze you in yeah. yes <laughs> uh, are you a horror fan and what do you make of horror as a literary genre becoming less pulpy and more like literary yeah i mean I, uh, so that's horror becoming more of a li- <laughs> oh God, yes it's so ridiculous <laughs> isn't it this is that's horror becoming more Literary and less pulpy. Very good question. Well, I mean, I think in contemporary fiction, particularly coming from America, there's a whole lineage like of the last 20 years of very interestingly female writers and recently queer female writers like Carmen Maria Machado, but before that, Kelly Link, Karen Russell, kind of um, merging kind of fabulous horror tropes. 
And I feel that particularly now, um, horror is the most you know, reflective genre of contemporary reality. We live in a freak show. What is going on? Just look at the newspaper. Like, have you seen the, that video from the summit? Like, that Trump was showing? Yeah. It was insane. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, it's, it's very interesting and very, very, um, I think, encouraging how, like, um, our perceptions of genre are blurring. Um, you know, now a lot more people read short fiction, a lot more people read novellas, and I think that's really, really exciting. And You know, people are into poetry. That's amazing. Yeah. I love poetry. Yes. Oh, no. It's gone. It's gone. That's fine. We were going to edit you out anyway. That's okay. Um, <laughs> for the moment, don't forget that Charlene's book is on sale at the end. Thank you so much, Charlene. Um, to bring us home, we have the author, Paul Howarth, um, who his book, Only Killers and Thieves, has just come out. Paul has come all the way from Norwich this evening, um, which, we're super, which we are super grateful for. Um, he studied for a master's in creative writing at the hugely prestigious University of East Anglia. Um, and while he was there, he was awarded the Malcolm Bradbury Scholarship. Give it up in the meantime for Paul Howarth. Thank you so much. Hello. Um, before I get on to the book, let me tell you very briefly a bit about me. Um, I know we've got a lot of writers in the room. Um, this is quite cool for me. So the book came out a week ago, we're in, obviously in 2018. Um, I started trying to write seriously exactly 10 years ago, um, like almost to the month. So there's a really nice kind of synergy to it. Um, so it's been a long road and I've probably been through every kind of trial and tribulation that you guys are going through or that everyone has been through as we've heard tonight. I've written various novels before this, um, been rejected goodness knows how many times. Um, I found an agent kind of earlier on um, had that book sent out to publishers and didn't sell, had that kind of crushing disappointment of, yay, I've made it. No, I haven't. Um, and then eventually kind of get here to stand in front of you all holding a copy of my own book. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> the frontier crossing turned in Tommy's gut, their passing from settled land to wild. All his life he'd feared it, the uncharted west, looming like a shadow on the edge of their world. The centre was filled with legends such as men like Burke and Wills, who had tried to cross the country and died along the way, or the everyday tales of vanished drovers and mysterious lost cattle mobs, many thousands strong, swagmen blinded by sandy blight or sent mad by the bush. Sometimes they came to the house, asking for food or work, muttering darkly about the places they'd been, and mother would take pity on them, and allow them a meal and a night in the bunkhouse, then father would chase them off come the dawn. Even in Bewley they weren't welcome. Tommy had seen them, in the, seen them raving in the street, staggering about like drunks. And yet always they went back there, into the nothingness that broke them, bewitched by it, entranced. That very same nothingness into which Tommy now rode, the empty swathe of country on the surveyor's map, the place where the lions ran out. And there really was nothing, the landscape stretched endlessly before them, a flat and uniform tundra of sunburnt grasslands, broken scrub, the tufted tops of trees or the skeletal outlines of their remains, blackened by bush bushfire, withered by drought. The ranges squatting low on the horizon, shapeless and obscure, a day and a half riding and still they were no nearer. It would be days more before they got there and nothing in between. No towns, no settlements, nothing between here and Perth thousands of miles away on the western coast, nothing except wild bushland and the lonely wooden shack 
that served as a telegraph station in a place called Alice Springs, and pity the poor bastard who found himself posted there. This book is like something that it's just so full of dread. We've spoken about this. <laughs> yeah. Like when I was reading it, I was like, I don't know if I can handle this. Like yeah, <laughs> when you want to turn the page, but like you're also like, what's going to happen next? Mm. I mean, and that's obviously it was a conscious decision to tell the reader, like you said, that the yeah. family die, yeah. the family are killed. Um, can you tell us a bit how, about how you paced it to kind of keep this kind of compulsive thing? I know that you kind of escalated the action a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the analogy I've used before is um, I imagine it like a kind of rolling stone. So it's almost as if I started off at the beginning of the book with a little pebble. And I just kind of flicked it and it starts to roll. And the, the further it goes, the bigger it gets and the more damage it causes, you know, and the faster it, it, it goes. So that was the kind of pacing I was trying to get in the book so that it starts off. I mean, there is a kind of, you know, there's like the classic inciting incident in the first chapter and all that kind of thing. But it's setting the tone hopefully as you say with that kind of feeling of dread already there and the idea is it just gets more and more relentless the further it goes so that the reader is kind of just ha has to keep turning the pages almost holding holding their breath to get to the end of the main section and then there's an epilogue at the end which i kind of describe as like the exhalation it's almost like you you get to the end of the main chapter and then there's an epilogue and that just allows hopefully the reader to kind of breathe out and reflect on everything that's happened. So it was a conscious decision to aim for that, like relentlessness of pace. Um, and hopefully it's, it's worked. You completely nailed it. I was, yeah, couldn't sleep. Like just same, same with Sophie's book, just like that kind of like just ramping up of the just couldn't stop reading. So yeah. you nailed it. But I'm like, and interesting, were you, did you always plan to have an epilogue where you kind of spoke about what, I'm not giving it away, but you spoke, yeah. did you always plan that? No, you know what? Um, so in the first year of writing, there was a lot of experimentation going on with how I could actually tell this story. Um, and um, I can just spy Caitlin there in the corner. So at, at UEA, um, uh, I, was, I was there with Caitlin and we spent a lot of time trying to work out, work out or I spent a lot of time with kind of my workshop group's help, trying to work out the voice for this novel. And so that's what took quite a long, a long time. And with that, at one point, I tried to write a framing story. So I would have a kind of an opening set, you know, after the, after the event, and then come back to it at the end and it didn't it didn't work it didn't quite fit but i liked that that setting that i'd created for the framing story so i decided to use that in the epilogue um it's kind of 19 years after the main the main thrust of of, of the book so that kind of came about just through trying to work out how to tell the story and i quite liked where i'd put tommy for the framing story and thought well I'll use that at the end instead yeah it worked yeah. really well yeah I might have a billion questions but I should probably share share the the floor with you guys any <laughs> any questions no okay brilliant I can ask some more um, so um one of the, what you just said about kind of trying to find the trying to find the way to tell the story the yeah. narrative and like I, I'm going through that at the moment like I've got my story I've got my plot kind of plot points but I can't work out the voice yeah. Um, yeah and like you know I know that it's probably just a case of trial and error but I kind of want to streamline that process as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so like, um, what? yeah, tell me, tell well, me, I've never heard of a framing story. Has anyone else heard of a framing story? Yeah, yeah okay, okay. <laughs> Sorry, Barry. And <laughs> did. <laughs> but if you could maybe tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, as kind of course. Of like so I started trying to write this in the first person. So okay. for a long time, I thought this was going to be 
kind of older Tommy telling his story, looking back. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of writers like uh, Ishiguro and particularly Remains of the Day. And he does something that is deceptively um, simple, but is actually quite brilliant in, in, in how he infuses the telling of a past story with the ramifications of that story on the teller. And it is incredibly hard to do. Um, and I think maybe I was trying to do that, do something like that, but not only was it not working, but it wasn't actually serving the story either. Um, I kind of realized that this needed to be a story that needed to be Im immediate for the reader. The, the reader needed to be, to be in this story, um, on the horse, feeling the heat, kind of smelling the sweat, and being there as it happened. And we didn't need it filtered through somebody else's consciousness. It needed to be um, immediate and, and visceral for the reader. Um, and there was a particular scene, actually. So it's, it's the point at which uh, Tommy, Billy, Sullivan and his kind of sidekick, Locke, ride out to meet the, the native police patrol for the very first time. And it's about, I don't know, a third of the way through the book, a quarter of the way through the book. And I wanted to describe the, the native police patrol in the distance as these guys um, rode out towards them. And I couldn't do it in Tommy's voice. He was too, I don't know, he was too kind of, I don't know, his, his vernacular, like it, it, it just wasn't quite right. And I kind of had what I kind of call a fuck it moment where I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to write this how I really want to write it. And I loved it. <laughs> um, and then I basically just stayed in that voice for the rest of the book. I went back and wrote the bit kind of before that. And it was like kind of taking the, the blinkers off. It was, it was almost as if I always knew how I wanted to tell the story, but didn't think that I'd either be able to do it or should do it that way or whatever it was. So I guess the advice is trust your gut. And if, if there's a voice that's kind of far away behind you, but intellectually you're thinking, you know what, I'm, this, is, this is the way to do it, forget that. Go with the voice back here and the voice kind of down here. So. Yeah. So what yeah, did you yeah. find about the inspiring about the American West that's helped you to help you with this? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I suppose um, you draw on influences maybe without even realizing it. I, 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 I never thought I was setting out to write a Western. People have kind of told me that's what I've written. But at the same time, I've always been very, you know, I've been a big fan of writers like Cormac McCarthy, uh, Philip Meyer, um, you know, these guys who 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 tackle these kind of stories in those those big landscapes and i think there's something about the way that american westerns or kind of modern american westerns revisionist westerns as it were have used landscape and theme in the same kind of way and um you can do an awful lot with it but it hadn't really been done so not on a grand scale anyway with australia and yet the australian landscape lends itself just as much to a Western story as the American landscape ever did. And so it was that kind of, you know, we've got things like, like dust storms and kind of raging heat and then like pouring drenching rain and stuff like that. And being able to kind of throw those into this kind of story in the way that authors like McCarthy do, um, where, you know, he, he, he uses kind of landscape, visual landscape to almost reflect 
the in interiority of characters because it gives you no interiority at all. And it, I, I guess it's that kind of thing that you try and take because I'm not particularly interested in interiority either. But, but, I, but I, I also want to show it in some kind of way. So that's a long-winded answer, <laughs> yeah. but thanks. <laughs> any, any others before? Yep, yeah, Danny? Uh, how did you come up with the names of the characters? So I think they are Thank you, yeah. Um, yeah, they, um, some of them kind of come just, they're just there. They just kind of pop into your head. Um, I guess names like Tommy and Billy for the two young boys, you want something that sounds innocent and kind of, you know, childlike almost. Um, and then the others, I mean, sometimes there's a bit of um, trial and error. So sometimes you have characters that are called one thing for quite a lot of the book and then you go back and change it and realize that's not right other times i'll literally write a list or i'll look at like ba baby name websites yeah. is, is is great for finding names um, <laughs> um you know the, even things like the phone book you know if, if, if you're after a surname sometimes because often for me anyway names are about how they look on the page and how they sound in my head so i'll often have a kind of a sound that I want to go for or like a, a beginning syllable so I don't know say it's H for example you might just go to H in the phone book and just start to and then they kind of slowly emerge and then it's almost like trying on clothes you sort of try them out and if it fits it fits and if it doesn't well maybe you leave it and come back to it um, it's a good procrastination yeah. method yeah yeah um, the one the one name that uh, I, I do kind of really like in this book is is Noon who is the he's the chief inspector the, the uh, inspector of the native police and with him like he he has to live up he has to carry a fair bit of the book in terms of the villainy and uh, he's kind of the representative of like british rule almost and it needs something to be to be sinister and um and that kind of like i say that looks good on 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 the page so um I, yeah i was quite pleased when, quite when i got that one yeah 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 I thought it was no one the whole time I was reading it. Yeah. <laughs> we had an embarrassing chat about that. <laughs> um, Just so you know, no one is two words. It's not hyphenated. <laughs> I'm supposed to be a writer. Brilliant. Anyway, um, thank you so much. Everyone check out the book. It's amazing. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you all so much for sharing your writing lives and your amazing readings at the Central Book. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're saving it. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Woods. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.